Chapter Twenty Five, Part One of Run to Earth, a Novel by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Twenty Five A Dangerous Alliance, Part One. In the afternoon of the day following that on which Sir Reginald paid a visit to Victor Carrington, the latter gentleman presented himself at the door of Hilton House. The frost had again set in, and this time with more than usual severity. There had been a heavy fall of snow, and the park-like grounds surrounding Madame Dursky's abode had an almost fairy-like appearance. The tracery of the leafless trees, defined by the snow that had lodged on every branch, the undulating lawn, one bed of pure white. He knocked at the door and waited. The woman at the lodge had told him that it was very unlikely he would be able to see Madame Dursky at this hour of the day, but he had walked on to the house notwithstanding. It was already nearly four o'clock in the afternoon, but at that hour Paulina had rarely left her own apartments. Victor Carrington knew this quite as well as the woman at the lodge, but he had business to do with another person as well as Paulina Dursky. That other person was the widow's humble companion. The door was opened by Carlo Toas, Paulina's confidential courier and butler. This man looked very suspiciously at the visitor. "'My mistress receives no one at this hour,' he said. "'I am aware that she does not usually see visitors so early,' replied Carrington. "'But, as I come on particular business, and as I come a long way to see her,' She will perhaps make an exception in my favor. He produced his card-case as he spoke, and handed the man a card, on which he had written the following words in pencil. Pray, see me, dear madam. I come on really important business, which will bear no delay. If you cannot see me till your dinner hour, I will wait. The Spaniard ushered Victor into one of the reception rooms, which looked cold and chill in the winter daylight. Except the grand piano, there was no trace of feminine occupation in that room. It looked like an apartment kept only for the reception of visitors, an apartment which lacked all the warmth and comfort of home. Victor waited for some time, and began to think his message had not been taken to the mistress of the house, when the door was opened and Miss Brewer appeared. She looked at the visitor with an inquisitive glance as she entered the room, and approached him softly, with her light, greenish-gray eyes fixed upon his face. "'Madame Dursky has been suffering from nervous headache all day,' she said, "'and has not yet risen. Her dinner hour is half-past six. "'If your business is really of importance, and if you care to wait, "'she will be happy to see you then. "'My business is of real importance, and I shall be very glad to wait,' answered Victor." Since Madame Dursky is unhappily unable to receive me for some time, I shall gladly avail myself of the opportunity in order to enjoy a little conversation with you, Miss Brewer, he said courteously, always supposing that you are not otherwise engaged. I have no other engagement whatever, answered the lady in a cold, measured voice. I wish to speak to you upon very serious business, continued Victor and I believe that I can venture to address you with perfect candor. The business to which I allude concerns the interests of Madame Dursky, 
and I have every reason to suppose that you are thoroughly devoted to her interests. "'For whom else should I care?' returned Miss Brewer, with a bitter laugh. "'Madame Dursky is the only friend I can count in this world. I have known her from her childhood. And, if I can believe anything good of my species, which is not very easy for me to do, I can believe that she cares for me a little.' as she might care for some piece of furniture which she had been accustomed to see about her from her infancy, and which she would miss if it were removed. "'You wrong your friend,' said Victor. "'She has every reason to be sincerely attached to you, and I have little doubt that she is so.' "'What right have you to have little doubt or much doubt about it?' exclaimed Miss Brewer contemptuously. "'And why do you try to palm off upon me the idle nonsense "'which senseless people consider it incumbent on them to utter? "'You do not know Paulina Dursky. I do. "'She is a woman who never in her life cared for more than two things. "'And these two things are the excitement of the gaming-table "'and the love of your worthless friend, Sir Reginald Eversleigh. "'Does she really love my friend?' "'She does.' She loves him as few men deserve to be loved, and least of all that man. She loves him, although she knows that her affection is unreturned, unappreciated. For his sake, she would sacrifice her own happiness, her own prosperity. Women are foolish creatures, Mr. Carrington, and you men do wisely when you despise them. I will not enter into the question of my friend's merits, said Victor. "'But I know that Madame Dursky has won the love of a man "'who is worthy of any woman's affection, "'a man who is rich, and can elevate her from her present doubtful position.' "'The Frenchman uttered these last words "'with a great appearance of restraint and hesitation. "'Say miserable position!' exclaimed Miss Brewer. "'For Paulina Dursky's position is the most degraded "'that a woman whose life has been comparatively sinless ever occupied.' "'And every day its degradation will become more profound,' said Victor. "'Unless Madame Dursky follows my advice, she cannot long remain in England. "'In her native city she has little to hope for. "'In Paris her name has acquired an evil odour. "'What then lies before her?' "'Ruin!' exclaimed Miss Brewer abruptly. "'Starvation it may be. "'I know that our race is nearly run, Mr. Carrington.' "'You need not trouble yourself to remind me of our misery. "'If I do remind you of it, I only do so in the hope that I may be able to serve you,' answered Victor. "'I have tasted all the bitterness of poverty, Miss Brewer. "'Forgive me if I ask whether you, too, have been acquainted with its sting?' "'Have I felt its sting?' cried the poor faded creature. Who has felt the tooth of the serpent, poverty, more cruelly than I? It has pierced my very heart. From my childhood I have known nothing but poverty. Shall I tell you my story, Mr. Carrington? I am not apt to speak of myself or of my youth, but you have evoked the demon memory, and I feel a kind of relief in speaking of that long-departed time. I am deeply interested in all you say, Miss Brewer. Stranger though I am, believe me, that my interest is sincere. As Victor Carrington said this, Charlotte Brewer looked at him with a sharp, penetrating glance. She was not a woman to be fooled by shallow hypocrisies. The light of the winter's day was fading, but even in the fading light, Victor saw the look of sharp suspicion in her pinched face. "'Why should you be interested in me?' 
she asked abruptly. "'Because I believe you may be useful to me,' answered Victor boldly. "'I do not want to deceive you, Miss Brewer. Great triumphs have been achieved by the union of two powerful minds. I know you to possess a powerful mind. I know you to be a woman above ordinary prejudices, and I want you to help me, as I am ready to help you. But you are about to tell me the story of your youth.' "'It shall be told briefly,' said Miss Brewer, speaking in a rapid, energetic manner that was the very reverse of the measured tones she was wont to use. "'I am the daughter of a disgraced man, who was a gentleman once, but I have forgotten that time, as he forgot it long before he died. My father passed the last ten years of his life in a prison. He died in that prison, and within those dingy, smoke-blackened walls my childhood was spent.' a joyless childhood, without a hope, without a dream, haunted perpetually by the dark phantom poverty. I emerged from that prison to enter a new one, in the shape of a West End boarding school, where I became the drudge and scapegoat of rich citizens' daughters, heiresses presumptive to the scrapings of tallow chandlers and coal merchants, linen drapers and cheesemongers. For six years I endured my fate patiently, uncomplainingly, not one creature amongst that large household loved me, or cared for me, or thought whether I was happy or miserable. I worked like a slave. I rose early and went to bed late, giving my youth, my health, my beauty. You will smile, perhaps, Mr. Carrington, but in those days I was accounted a handsome woman. In exchange for what? My daily bread, and the education which was to enable me to earn a livelihood hereafter. Some distant relations undertook to clothe me, and I was dressed in those days about as shabbily as I have been dressed ever since. In all my life I never knew the innocent pleasure which every woman feels in the possession of handsome clothes. At eighteen I left the boarding school to go on the continent, where I was to fill a situation which had been procured for me. That situation was in the household of Paulina Dursky's father. Paulina was ten years of age, and I was appointed as her governess and companion. From that day to this, I have never left her. As much as I am capable of loving anyone, I love her. But my mind has been embittered by the miseries of my girlhood, and I do not pretend to be capable of much womanly feeling. I thank you for your candor, said Victor. It is of importance for me to understand your position, for by doing so, I shall be the better able to assist you. I may believe, then, that there is only one person in the world for whom you care, and that person is Paulina Dursky? You may believe that. And I may also believe that you, who have drained to the dregs the bitter cup of poverty, would do much, and risk much, in order to be rich? You may. Then, Miss Brewer, let me speak to you openly, as one sincerely interested in you and desirous of serving you and your charming but infatuated friend. May I hope that we shall be uninterrupted for some time longer? For I am anxious to explain myself at once, and fully, now that the opportunity has arisen. No one is likely to enter this room unless summoned by me, said Miss Brewer. You may speak freely and at any length you please, Mr. Carrington, but I warn you, you are speaking to a person who has no faith in any profession of disinterested regard. As she spoke, Miss Brewer leaned back in her chair, 
folded her hands before her, and assumed an utterly impassable expression of countenance. No less promising recipient of a confidential scheme could have been seen, but Victor Carrington was not in the least discouraged. He replied in a cheerful, deferential, and yet business-like tone. "'I am quite aware of that, Miss Brewer, and for my part, I should not feel the respect I do feel for you if I believed you so deficient in sense and experience as to take any other view. I don't offer myself to you in the absurd disguise of a preux chevalier, anxious to espouse the unprofitable cause of two unprotected women in an equivocal position, and in circumstances rapidly tending to desperation. Here Victor Carrington glanced at his companion. He wanted to see if the shot had told. But Miss Brewer cared no more for the almost open insult than she had cared for the implied interest conveyed in the exordium of his discourse. She sat silent and motionless. He continued, I have an object to gain which I am resolved to achieve. Two ways to the attainment of this object are open to me. The one, injurious, in fact destructive, to you and Madame Dursky. The other, eminently beneficial. I am interested in you. I particularly like Madame Dursky, though I am not one of the legion of her professed admirers. Miss Brewer shook her head sadly. That legion was much reduced in its numbers of late. Therefore, continued Carrington, without seeming to observe the gesture, I prefer to adopt the latter course, and further your interests in securing my own. I suppose you can at least understand and credit such very plain motives, so very plainly expressed, Miss Brewer. Yes, she said, that may be true. It does not seem unlikely. We shall see. You certainly shall. My explanation will not, I hope, be unduly tedious, but it is indispensable that it should be full. You know, Miss Brewer, that Sir Reginald Eversleigh and I are intimate friends— Miss Brewer smiled, a pale, prolonged, unpleasant smile, and then replied, speaking very deliberately, "'I know nothing of the kind, Mr. Carrington. I know you are much together, and have an air of familiar acquaintance, which is the true interpretation of friendship, I take it, between men of the world, of your world in particular.' The hard and determined expression of her manner would have discouraged and deterred most men— it did not discourage or deter Victor Carrington. "'Put what interpretation you please upon my words,' he said, "'but recognize the facts. "'There is a strict alliance, if you prefer that phrase, "'between me and Sir Reginald Eversleigh, "'and his present intimacy with his seeming devotion to Madame Dursky "'prevents him from carrying out the terms of that alliance "'to my satisfaction. "'I am therefore resolved to break off that intimacy.' "'Do you comprehend me so far?' "'Yes, I comprehend you so far,' answered Miss Brewer. "'Perfectly.' "'Considering Madame Dursky's feelings for Sir Reginald, "'feelings of which, I assure you, "'I consider him, even according to my own unpretending standards, "'entirely unworthy. "'This intimacy cannot be broken off without pain to her, "'but it might be destroyed without any profit, "'nay, with ruinous loss.' Now, I cannot spare her the pain. That is necessary, 
indispensable, both for her good and, which I don't pretend not to regard more urgently, my own. But I can make the pain eminently profitable to her, with your assistance. In fact, so profitable as to secure the peace and prosperity of her whole future life. He paused, and Miss Brewer looked steadily at him, but she did not speak. "'Reginald Eversleigh owes me money, Miss Brewer, and I cannot afford to allow him to remain in my debt. I don't mean that he has borrowed money from me, for I never had any to lend, and having any should never have lent it.' He saw how the tone he was taking suited the woman's perverted mind, and pursued it. "'But I have done him certain services for which he undertook to pay me money, and I want money. He has none.' and the only means by which he can procure it is a rich marriage. Such a marriage is within his reach. One of the richest heiresses in London would have him for the asking. She is an ironmonger's daughter, and pines to be my lady. But he hesitates, and loses his time in visits to Madame Dursky, which are only doing them both harm. Doing her harm because they are deceiving her, encouraging a delusion and doing him harm, because they are wasting his time, and incurring the risk of his being blown upon to the ironmonger. Vulgar people of the kind, you know, my dear Miss Brewer, give ugly names, and attach undue importance to intimacies of this kind, and, and in short, it is on the cards that Madame Dursky may spoil Sir Reginald's game. Well, as that game is also mine, you will find no difficulty in understanding that I do not intend Madame Dursky shall spoil it. Yes, I understand that, said Miss Brewer, as plainly as before. But I don't understand how Paulina is to be served in the affair, and I don't understand what my part is to be in it. I am coming to that, he said. You cannot be unaware of the impression which Madame Dursky has made upon Sir Reginald's cousin, Douglas Dale. I know he did admire her, said Miss Brewer, but he has not been here since his brother's death. He is a rich man now. Yes, he is. But that will make no change in him in certain respects. Douglas Dale is a fool, and will always remain so. Madame Dursky has completely captivated him, and I am perfectly certain he would marry her tomorrow if she could be brought to consent. "'A striking proof that Mr. Douglas Dale deserves the character you have given him, "'you would say, Mr. Carrington?' "'Madam, I am at the mercy of your perspicuity,' said Victor, with a mock bow. "'However, a truce to badinage. "'Douglas Dale is a rich man, and very much in love with Madame Dursky. "'But he is the last man in the world to interfere with his cousin by trying to win her affections, if he believes her attached to Sir Reginald. He is a fool in some things, as I have said before, and he is much more likely, if he thinks it a case of mutual desperation, to contribute a thousand a year or so, to set the couple up in a modest competence, like a princely proprietor in a play, than to advance his own claims. Now, this modest competence business would not suit Sir Reginald, or Madame Dursky, or me, but the other arrangement would be a capital thing for us all. Hm. You see she really loves your friend, Sir Reginald, said Miss Brewer. Tush! ejaculated Victor Carrington contemptuously. 
of course i know she does but what does it matter she would be the most wretched of women if reginald married her and he won't after all that's the great point he won't now dale will and will give her unlimited control of his money a very nice position not so elevated as to ensure an undesirable raking up of her antecedents and the means of proving her gratitude to you by providing for you comfortably for life that is all possible replied miss brewer as calmly as before but what am i to do towards bringing about so desirable a state of affairs you have to use the influence which your position auprès de madame dursky gives you you can keep her situation constantly before her you can perpetually harp upon its exigencies they are pressing are they not yes then make them more pressing expose her to the constant worry and annoyance of poverty make no effort to hide the inconvenience of ruin she is a bad manager of course all women of her sort are bad managers don't help her make the very worst of everything then you can take every opportunity of pointing out reginald's neglect all his defalcations the cruelty of his conduct to her the evidence of his never intending to marry her the selfishness which makes him indifferent to her troubles and unwilling to help her work on pride on pique on jealousy on the love of comfort and luxury and the horror of poverty and privation which are always powerful in the minds of women like madame dursky don't talk much to her at first about douglas dale especially until he has come to town and resumed his visiting here but take care that her difficulties press heavily upon her and that she is kept in mind that help or hope from reginald there is none i have no doubt whatever that dale will propose to her if he does not see her infatuation for reginald but suppose mr dale does not come here at all asked miss brewer he has broken through the habit now and he may have thought it over and determined to keep away suppose a moth flies away from a candle miss brewer returned carrington and makes a refreshing excursion out of window into the cool evening air may we not calculate with tolerable certainty on his return and his incremation the last thing in all this matter i should think of doubting would be the readiness of douglas dale to tumble head foremost into any net we please to spread for him a short pause ensued interrupted by miss brewer who said i suppose this must all be done quickly on account of that wealthy philistine the ironmonger on account of my happening to want money very badly miss brewer and madame dursky finding herself in the same position the more quickly the better for all parties and now i have spoken very plainly to you so far let me speak still more plainly it is manifestly for your advantage that madame dursky should be rich and respectable rather than that she should be poor and under a cloud it is no less manifestly though not so largely for your advantage that i should get my money from reginald eversleigh because when i do get it i will hand you five hundred pounds by way of bonus 
if there were any means by which you could be legally bound to the fulfilment of that promise mr carrington said miss brewer i should request you to put it in writing but i am quite aware that no such means exist i accept it therefore with moderate confidence and will adopt the course you have sketched not because i look for the punctual payment of the money but because paulina's good fortune if secured will secure mine but i must add and here miss brewer sat upright in her chair and a faint colour came into her sallow cheek i should not have anything to do with your plots and plans if i did not believe and see that this one is for paulina's real good victor carrington smiled as he thought here is a rare sample of human nature here is this woman quite pleased with herself and positively looking almost dignified because she has succeeded in persuading herself that she is actuated by a good motive the conversation between miss brewer and victor carrington lasted for some time longer and then he was left alone while miss brewer went to attend the levee of madame dursky as he paced the room carrington smiled again and muttered if dale were only here and she could be persuaded to borrow money of him all would be right so far all is going well and i have taken the right course my motto is the motto of danton de l'audace de l'audace et toujours de l'audace end of chapter twenty five part one